It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hello, babe. I'm Lou Gehrig. Listen, Lou, how did you get the stocking home run? It was like this. I watched you and read how much money you were getting, and I got to thinking. Thinking? With what? First. Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Don. <laughs> hey, Don. Tell Murray about the time you won the game when you slid into home plate. Oh, Jack, I'd rather not. I'm embarrassed. I don't blame you. <laughs> tell me, did they ever find that catcher? <laughs> Those pitchers try to hit you. You play baseball and you got to stay in there because the guy throws a curveball at you. It may break across the plate. And your mind says, stay in there. But your body says, Let's, we got to move. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park. The baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium. War Memorial Stadium. In baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you wear a helmet. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April the 8th, show number 23 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davich, your host, and we'll be talking with BaseballHQ.com general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy about early season roster management, some in-season features at the BaseballHQ.com site, and his studs and duds for 2014. We'll also have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about PQS scores for starting pitchers. And in the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com prospects analyst Rob Gordon talks about the Reds' top prospect, right-handed pitcher Rob Stevenson. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Josh Hamilton is batting 500. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, it's true. Through the first week of the season, Josh Hamilton of the Angels is batting a cool 500, leading the league by 29 points over the Yankees' Yang Jervis Solarte. And who heard of him? And who heard of Charlie Blackman of Colorado? He's leading the National League at a cool 542, pacing Emilio Bonifacio of the Cubs, who's at 500. It's fun looking at stats at this early part of the year because they look so weird. Who would imagine, for instance, that Mark Trumbo would be leading the National League in home runs with five? Well, Todd Zola did. He drafted him in practically every league he's in. And he's got the rewards, too. Trumbo also leads the National League in RBIs with 13, one ahead of Giancarlo Stanton and three ahead of Stanton's Miami teammate, Casey McGee. But on the American League side, the RBI leader, Chris Colabello of the Minnesota Twins. And who saw that coming? Is Justin Smoke second place, eight RBIs, a harbinger of things to come for this season, or just a lucky fluke? That's the problem with these early stats. You never know what to expect. 
Fortunately, we don't have that problem with our guest. This week on the Tuesday Tout Edition, we always expect great things from the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and speculator columnist, it's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Patrick. Always good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, no, it's it's great to have you. It's an important time of year. I always like to catch up. Uh, before we get started talking about the season that's just underway and the BaseballHQ.com site and so forth, uh, how many drafts are you doing this year? Well, I was counting up before we went on the air here, and I think I did six or seven. You know, it's probably about all I can handle. Is one of them or more uh, a home league? Do you still play your home league buddies? Yeah, the closest thing I have to a home league is I still play in a 2014 APA league, uh, which I got into, you know, some 20 years ago in college. And, you know, we met in February for annual rookie draft. And I see those guys, you know, once a year and they're all, you know, longtime friends at this point. Uh, so a bit of a different schedule, different format with the APA league. But that's uh, people ask me what my home league is. And that's what I tell them. I know you play NFBC. I know you're in a number of experts league drafts. Overall, how did you think your drafts went? Well, I was. I think it was last weekend when I was setting rosters for, you know, the first week, and I was looking at the teams I drafted and realized that they're a lot more similar than I might have planned. Usually, I try to you know pay some attention throughout draft season to diversifying my portfolio and that sort of thing. And it appears in some places I forgot about that, and I placed a lot of bets in a lot of the same places. So if they if those things all work out in my favor, it could be a really good year. But, you know, then I look around and it's already the first week and I see that I had, you know, Chad Qualls as a end game closer on three or four teams. And now it looks like he's not the closer in Houston or, you know, is behind Josh Fields in the pecking order. So when you place all those bets in the same places, if they work out, that's great. But if they don't, you could have a very long season. So too early to say, but we'll have to see how it goes. I'm curious about that. Did you have any uh, common threads on offense? Yeah, there were a couple. I saw a lot of Corey Hart and uh, a couple of guys who I knew all year. HQ was a little higher on than others, uh, other sites. And I went back and since I'm handling most of the projections now, I went back and reviewed them and decided I was comfortable with them. Aramis Ramirez is another one that I picked up a bunch of. Uh, Alexi Ramirez, you know, a couple of guys like that who, you know, uh, HQ was a little more bullish on and then I apparently put my money where my mouth was and decided I was going to buy into that projection. So we'll we'll have to see how those play out. I only play in a couple of leagues myself, so it's not really applicable to me in the same way. But uh, I'm curious about this idea of diversifying your portfolio because it seems to me that the risk is, I understand you're trying to ameliorate your risk, but it seems to me the risk is you make a bunch of different teams with a bunch of different uh, mix, mixes of players, and the risk is that every team has a couple of duds, and they're different duds, and so you you end up not having a team at all, whereas going more your way, which is the same players on more teams, at least you know that if you win on Team A, you're going to win a lot of other teams, which you wouldn't if that uh, if that great successful player wasn't on all your rosters. Yeah, you're right. You still have to select players you believe in. If you're just, if you forget about that and are just worried about drafting different players, eventually, if you play in enough leagues, you get to the point where you own everybody. And, you know, you'll have 10 leagues and you'll finish first in one of them just by roll of the dice. But, you know, that's no fun. So you're right. You have to keep an eye on, you know, your core principles and sticking with guys you believe in and, you know, play some bets on guys that you're willing to, that you, 
you are confident in, but you know it doesn't mean you know, especially on a pitching side, you know, with with this trend toward taking starting pitching early, you know, and that being kind of risky, you know, if you were the guy who picked Clayton Kershaw in five leagues, you're you know feeling like a heel right now, and you never want to go that far, you know. To me, it's not a case of a, I think if I'm in ten leagues, I'm going to win one of them just because of random. Uh, diversification. I think the risk is I'm going to have 10 leagues and I'm not going to win any of them because my my hits are going to be offset by my misses. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, to be sure, there's also a, you know, there's a time element. And, you know, if you play in 10 leagues, you may not be able to do a good enough job of paying attention to managing any of them. And maybe you won't win any of them because of that. So, you know, you've got to, you know, both in terms of diversifying the player pool and in terms of time management you you got to be careful not to spread yourself out too thin yeah that's a great point at least if you have the same guy on all 10 teams if you know he's doing well you, d- you don't have to look at him nine different times uh, he's just doing well for you you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with ray murphy speculator columnist and co-general manager at baseballhq.com and ray let's move on to talk about Early season management, we've uh, had the drafts for millions of fantasy baseball players. The excitement and intensity of draft day is wearing off, and now the long slog starts. It's a marathon, not a sprint, as we know. What are the first steps you take after your drafts are complete to try to figure out where you stand and maybe what you're going to need to have a successful season? I I don't do a heck of a lot between draft day and opening day. You know, there are some people who uh, will start pulling their team apart right away and say, I'm strong with this, I'm weak with that, I need more of this. And, you know, we get a lot of these questions on our subscriber forums. And, you know, one thing that I always counsel people to do is not overreact to theoretical problems and to wait until they become actual problems with your roster. And you you may have a surplus of starting pitching or whatever, but think you're deficient in power. But maybe you drafted a guy in the reserve round who, you know, has the potential to help mitigate that. So before you go spend that starting pitching surplus on fixing what you think is that need, I would wait and see whether that need is a real one, because you might go off and fix a power problem, but thinking that you were all set with speed because you had Jose Reyes, and then one week into the season, suddenly you've got an actual speed problem as opposed to your theoretical power problem. So I'm more of a sit back and let things develop kind of person. That's not to say that I don't have in my mind what those theoretical problems are on my teams or what picks I think I botched and what areas might need reinforcing. But I try to tell myself that there are areas that might need reinforcing and aren't things that I have to go out and fix today. That's an interesting perspective. In my Tow Wars draft, I ended up with a team that by the projections on the on roto.com site, and they use baseballhq.com projections as well as one other set, and in both of them, I projected to have maybe 35 or 40 more stolen bases than I was going to need, which is kind of by design at the draft. I realized I was going that way, that power was going to be unavailable at that stage of the draft. So I really loaded up on stolen base guys in the expectation I'd be able to trade one or more of them. And right out of the gate, I thought to myself after I saw the projection, boy, I should try to find a guy in this league who's got way more home runs than he needs and see if I can or orchestrate a swap. And while I was thinking it, somebody in in the league sent me that offer. And now I'm wondering, we haven't consummated anything yet because we're negotiating about the who the players are going to be, but how much should an owner trust projected standings at this early stage? And in general, what do you think is the best use of projected standings when you're trying to make your roster plan for the uh, long haul? I think you've got to be very careful with them. The example you talk about is pretty straightforward. If you've you know stolen bases, you know, or aggregate category. If you've got 35 or 40 
stir, surplus stolen bases. That basically means you've got you know, one or one and a half more speedsters than you need. And that, that seems like something that's actionable. But you look at if you pull apart your projected standings from, you know, on Roto or your stat provider or in Roto Lab or whatever, you know, you got to be very careful. The, the tendency is to go look at the bottom line and say, hey, I'm projected for 104 points and that's first in the league or second in the league or whatever. And I'm way less interested in that than I am in the way the categories bunch. And if you go and start looking at the way the individual categories project, then you can learn something. And to me, there's really only three possible measurements that I look at when I'm going through category standings. You're either in the pack, above it, or below it. And you might have, you know, four points out of 12 projected in batting average, but you might only be, you know, three ticks, three, you know, 0.003 batting average points from gaining six points. At that point, the projection becomes meaningless. You're in the pack. And, you know, one guy hitting 10 or 15 points above or below what we project is enough to move you, you know, around in that pack. I'm really interested in just determining whether I'm in the pack, have a big surplus, or have a big shortage. And that's the kind of information I'll start to think about acting on. But whether, you know, one guy is projected at 269 and then the next at 268, I'm at 267, I don't care. Yeah, that's fair enough. And it's also, especially in the pitching side, in the in the ratio categories, you can manage those categories to make moves even relatively late in the season. Ray, I know a lot depends on how leagues are structured, how they establish their rules for play, but roughly what percentage of the league outcome derives from the draft, do you think, and what percentage comes from roster management in season? I think it's a lot. I think in-season management is greatly underrated, and you know, so much attention goes into the draft day, and depending on your league rules, you know, there, you know, your access to change out what you selected on your draft day or what you bought at auction may, you know, be fettered or unfettered or you know somewhere on a continuum there. But almost regardless of what your rules are, unless you're really, really restricted into having to sort of play a draft and hold format where you're keeping your guys and those are your guys for the whole year, I really feel like in-season management is you know more critical than anyone gives credence to. And, you know, sort of to the point I was talking about earlier with the standings, you know, you come, you come out of your draft and the standings, you know, most teams are going to be bunched in most categories in terms of projections. And what that amounts to in final standings is going to be influenced by a lot of small decisions throughout the course of the year. They're going to have a big standings impact. And even if you think about it in terms of who you drafted, Every team, well, not every team, but a few teams in your league are going to have someone who's a lot better than we even know yet. You know, the guy who a year ago at this time drafted Chris Davis in the 10th round that didn't know he was going to get 50 home runs from him, that sort of thing. There are a couple of people who have a leg up, and there are a couple of people who they may already be starting to know it, but, you know, there will certainly still be more injuries. But, you know, somebody who opened their draft with Clayton Kershaw, Jose Reyes, and, you know, had Bobby Parnell as a closer, you know, you're in a hole at this point. But, you know, Taking out those extremes, anyone who had sort of a midline average-ish draft, I think turning average into a good or bad season hinges entirely on in-season management and you know grinding it out over that marathon that you were talking about earlier over the six-month stretch. I think is you know literally where leagues get get won and lost, and perhaps not enough people you know think about it in those terms. You mentioned Ray and the mantra at BaseballHQ.com and elsewhere is to exercise real patience with your roster, not to overreact, especially early on in the year. 
But I look at a situation like this, Abraham Almonte in Seattle, the center fielder there, probably undrafted in a lot of mixed leagues, and he looks like he might be able to provide some value to the Mariners and to a fantasy team, especially if he stays on the roster. For that reason, he's not going to last long in the free agent pool, and that seems to me to create something of a dilemma for the fantasy owner. You don't want to be too quick on the trigger in grabbing up a guy like Almonte, who's largely unproved, he's got a lot of question marks. But on the other hand, if you sit around and wait for him to confirm it, he's going to be long gone. So how soon can a prudent manager start making those kind of roster moves and what do you think are the justifications that make the most sense for early roster moves? I, I think it comes back to two things. It comes back to skills and opportunity. And we're seeing Almonte get an opportunity. And you know, one thing you want to if you want to start there, one thing you want to evaluate is how clear is that opportunity, or how sustained is it likely to be? And there were a bunch of moving parts in that Seattle outfield DH first base mix, and you know, Almonte has. The, the job now, but I think there are enough people lurking behind him or enough different combinations of lineups that they can use out there that he's going to have to produce to keep that opportunity and to keep getting it and getting in the lineup regularly. And th- to answer that question, then you start looking at the skills. And in Almonte's case, I don't see plus power. I don't see plus speed. You know, he's the kind of guy who, certainly in an AL only league, the counting stats that he'll get from playing if he gets 350, 400 at bats have value. But I don't see, you know, a breakout ceiling here where there's, you know, 20 home run or 20 stolen base potential, anything like that. So, you know, that's just one example. But to, to your larger point, I think, you know, there's a, you know, there's an overall calculus of, you know, that post-draft evaluation that we were talking about and having some idea of what your team needs and whether this guy who's getting an early season opportunity, if he sustains the opportunity, can he give you the kind of stuff you need? And you know, part, and while we often say, you know, spend fab early, spend, spend fab often, you know, there is certainly an element, you know, very early in the season that keeping your powder dry a little bit because the first flash in the pan the, the Almonte type is not necessarily going to be the best one. It's not to say you want to, you know, keep all your fab for July and August, but, you know, in two or three or four weeks, you know, there might be players who you wish you could chase harder after, but you can't because you blew 20% of your budget on Abraham Almonte in the first week, and now he's just a fourth outfielder again. The current list of Major League home run leaders after a few days of play, uh, two home runs apiece includes familiar power providers like Jose Bautista and Nelson Cruz. Okay, we'll buy that. But how about Alejandro Diazza, Brad Miller, Justin Smoke also has seven RBIs to lead Major League Baseball, and Brandon Belt. The knock on spring training stats, as I heard all during spring training here on Baseball HQ Radio from our Tuesday tout experts, is that those stats occurred during meaningless games. So, Ray, for projecting player performance, how much do we prefer a small sample of meaningful games over a large sample of meaningless games? Uh, Can I choose none of the above? I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, one is as dangerous as the other, and I'll I'll give some caveats. But with most examples of, you know, guys who get off to a hot start or guys who have a good first week, you know, as we've said before, you know, if you dropped the, the week that Justin Smoke is having into, you know, the third week of July, nobody would notice. It's just that everyone's watching right now. There's a lot of eyeballs on it. It's easy to see his, you know, what 
his hot week has done to his year-to-date stat line because his hot week is his year-to-date stat line. So, you know, I think it's easy to overinterpret and easy to overanalyze, and you want to keep in mind that it's just one week. I uh, my In my NFBC team uh, is not hitting much to start the season, and I shot my partner uh, an email last night and said, hey, our team for the season so far is 19 for 102. And Emilio Bonifacio, who's not on our team, is 8 for 10 on his own. You know, Both of those things are going to change very quickly. How about on the pitching side? Uh, I'm curious how you look at a performance like Mark Burley the other night had 11 strikeouts and shut out the Tampa Bay Rays. They're a good club, and they were in Tampa and I wonder how much do you trust a, a performance like that by an established veteran who does have a bit of a track record, but this looks like it's an outlier from that track record. Yeah, I know who Mark Burley is, and what he did last Thursday night doesn't change my mind in any way. You know, uh, with younger guys or less established guys, I'm a little more interested. I'm you know willing to draw quick conclusions, and you know. It, not that I consider myself a scout, but one thing I love to do around this time of year is just fire up the MLB TV and just surf around and you know give the eyeball test to a whole bunch of guys, which because I'm not a scout can be perilous and you know can lead to bad conclusions. But hey, it's still fun. Uh, but you know Stephen Nickrand and his you know great starting pitchers buyers got in our site, started to do a little bit of work looking at you know some spring training stats and limiting himself to young pitchers and you know throwing out all kinds of caveats and. You know, one thing you can do is you can, to your point about small early season sample sizes versus spring training sample sizes, one thing you can start to do is combine the two and say, you know, Burley's a bad example because we know who he is, but take somebody um, who has a good first start, say Willie Peralta goes out and throw, has, a, has a good first couple of starts, and you'll go back and look at his spring training numbers and tie them to you know what he does in his first 10 or 12 innings and in the games that count and then maybe by taking two numbers that on their own we're not willing to attach meaning to you can start to connect some dots and maybe get some confidence that something's going on with you know a guy with a less track record or a guy who you can reasonably expect might emerge into something different like I said Mark Burley we know who he is so he's not that guy but somebody else Ray it seems to me that it might be a different situation with closers. We've seen blown saves already by established guys. Uh, Jason Grilly blew a save. Jim Johnson uh, also took a loss in another game by giving up three runs in the top of the ninth of a tie. Joe Nathan, Jonathan Papelbon, Bobby Parnell, of course, now he's on the DL and looks like he might be headed for uh, Tommy John surgery. Jose Veras blew a save. Glenn Perkins blew a save. These guys are, for the most part, pretty well-established uh, closers, but because of the role the managers play in choosing who gets that job, how much more concern do you have about an early poor performance by even an established closer? Yeah, you have to be concerned about these. This is, you know, for all we say about exercise excruciating patience and by skills, not roles, that you, know, you have to treat closers differently because the opportunity is such a huge percentage of the equation. And yeah, you know, some of the guys you rattled off, uh, are not going to lose their job for one bad outing in April, but you know other guys, you know, are already on notice, and you have to pay attention to that, and you know, be evalu- you know, looking at the bullpens and evaluating not only who's next in line, but if that guy gets promoted, do you think he's someone who can take the job and run with it, or is he going to be just a week or two placeholder until he too flushes out? So that's where the skills matter too. But yeah, you have to be almost constantly reading the tea leaves and interpreting these 
these opportunities and trying to figure out who, you know, which job is the next one to open up. Because, you know, uh, in a lot of cases, the way to win at these closer games is not to wait till a guy loses the job and then go blow 30 or 40 or 50 percent of your fab on the announced replacement. It's to scam scan the waiver wire and pick up the announced re- the unannounced replacement who you believe would be the next in line the week before the guy loses the job at you know one-tenth of what he would cost the week after. That's where you turn a profit in these closer games. And th- there are costs to that in terms of you know roster churn and you know throwing dart- it, it's a dart throwing exercise to some extent, but it's uh, potentially a very lucrative one if you hit a couple of those right. Yeah, everybody last year wishes they had had uh, Koji Uehara, who was probably available in most free agent pools at the start of the year. Um, I gambled on the wrong Japanese guy in Boston, unfortunately, but it's a it's a sound point. Now's the time to be looking at uh, shaky situations. Uh, Nate Jones in Chicago, for instance, strikes me as a very shaky situation. He doesn't have a track record that a manager can look at and say, "Yeah, he'll he'll write the ship." He hasn't had a ship out on the ocean in his career so far. Staying in the bullpen, another step I like to watch is which non-closer relievers are getting the ball in in non-save situations, but nonetheless in high leverage situations. So we see, for instance, of course, Cody Allen of Cleveland got two quick vulture wins, and I'm wondering, does that pique your interest? Does it raise your interest in him if he were in your free agent pool? In that specific example, no. I, I think the exercise you're talking about is entirely valuable, but I, I already knew that Cody Allen was you know, a highly skilled plan B option, and I think... You know, part of this calculus always depends on what you think of the incumbent too. And you know, Axford to be clear is certainly in the you know bottom third of closers if you were going to rank them one to thirty. But I'm I was somebody who bought in a little bit to the notion that he was tipping his pitches at times last year, or and that's what mostly got him run out of Milwaukee, and then that St. Louis fixed that. It's you know, a bit of a soft skills narrative kind of thing, but seemed plausible to me. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if Axford is able to hold on to that job for a little longer than some other people think. So that might, might dissuade me from you know speculating on Allen just because the job that he aspires to is not necessarily one that I think is going to open up in the very near term. There might be other opportunities where there are guys who have skills that are comparable to Allen who are behind somebody who I think is more likely to blow up sooner. Uh, You mentioned earlier uh, the idea of getting the proto-closer before the bad news hits. In the case of the New York Mets, I mentioned Bobby Parnell. The bad news has hit. He's definitely on the shelf. He's on the DL probably for at least six weeks. And if that doesn't pan out, it'll be a year and a half because of Tommy John. So we're coming into the first fab break this weekend. There's a very good chance Jose Valverde was not drafted in most leagues. And I'm asking if it were in your league and you had a $100 budget, how much would you spend on Jose Valverde? Uh, I think it's a case where it almost doesn't matter because somebody else is going to spend more. Uh, I'm In case of Valverde, I think he's you know not just past his prime, but several years past his prime. I think he's probably a stopgap in that Mets pen. I don't necessarily think they'll go out and make a trade because that doesn't seem like the state the team is in right now, but I'm already thinking in terms of you know who's the guy after Valverde because think about it. We saw this even last year in Detroit where the whole nonsense happened where you know they didn't sign him until I think we were already in the season and then they sent him down to the minors to get ready because Bruce Rondon wasn't working out as closer and 
you know, the Tiger bullpen was in turmoil in the beginning of the year, and they turned to Valverde, and Valverde came, you know, riding in on his white horse and picked up, you know, three saves in a week or something like that and stabilized that bullpen seemingly. But then another 10 days after that, he was out of a job and I think had even been released by then. And I just don't have any confidence that Valverde is going to be a guy who can hold the job. Uh, with the Mets in the ninth inning for you know a couple of months or even a month, I think he's going to be a guy who is a stopgap for a couple of weeks or maybe maybe a month while he takes his lumps. But the Mets have not figured out who the better alternative is. But I don't think it's going to take the long that long for the Mets to realize that they need to be thinking in terms of where they're going next, and if that means. Familia, or if that means getting Vic Black straightened out in the minors or what have you, I think, you know, if someone's willing to, back to your original question, if someone's willing to plunk down 20% of their fab budget on Valverde, I'm going to let them. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy, speculator, columnist, and co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, uh, millions of fantasy players re-gearing up for the season, or as I like to call it, the after-draft segment of the season, and information providers like BaseballHQ.com are doing the same. So uh, bring us up to date. How does the product mix at BaseballHQ.com change now that draft prep season is over and season roster management has started? Yeah, it's funny. If you look at the uh, where the traffic goes on our site, you know, it's this week that the, uh, you know, the, the, the highest used function on the site stops being the custom draft guide. The custom draft guide, you know, gets a ton of traffic in the off season as everyone's, you know, studying projections and trying to figure out how values map to their league. And now that everybody has their team, they start moving away from that tool and into, you know, some of the areas of the site. Uh, we fired up our starting pitching report for opening day, which is perhaps the uh, most powerful in-season tool we have. And in my opinion, one of the um, most underutilized functions on the site where you know, we use our PQS score methodology to give each starter a rating for one particular start. And we found that the formula we use, while pretty elementary, is also very, very accurate. And you know, for the first couple of weeks while we're building up a statistical sample size, we run that starting pitching report using 2013 data. So it's still there, but you know, we're looking backwards at last year. But come toward the end of April, we start flipping that thing over to running on in-season data and the results get really exciting about how it uh how it predicts start to start performances so that's a critical lineup tool the mac team tracker gets a lot of traffic and it's a little tedious to go in and actually set up your team or your league in there but once you do it it gives you all sorts of helpful information about the bpis your team has on a roster level you can see what your team batting average versus expected batting average is and what your team contact rate and i are and what your xera is for your staff of pitchers and how it compares to your era your strand rate all that stuff great stuff that you know really can inform a lot of roster decisions and you know back to what we were talking about earlier can answer some of the questions about how quickly you need to move or how soon you should push the panic button it's one thing to say you're last in your league in era but you're staff has a you know 58% strand rate and you've just been unlucky and it's another one to say that your staff is you know not getting lucky or unlucky but is just you know pitching poorly so you know the tools we have on the site start to answer those questions and really start should start to shape how you approach managing in season and how quickly or slowly you decide to you know push the proverbial panic button
Ray, that pitcher matchups tool is really good, and of course we'll be having it here all season at Baseball HQ Radio with Greg Fishwick. Uh, it's a really valuable tool, not just for uh, streaming players, but for p- people who are playing in various kinds of points leagues head-to-head. It really is a terrific thing. It also helps you make some decisions about whether to actually just completely waive a guy. If week after week he's a bad matchup, you're, you're really not doing yourself any favors by hanging on to it. Another really valuable source of wisdom for me over the years at BaseballHQ.com has been the subscriber forums, Ray. I post a question about a potential trade. I want to see about a free agent pickup. And usually within a couple of hours, you've got 10 or 20 or more really thoughtful answers from some really good, experienced fantasy baseball players. How many of them are on there now, Ray? We've got hardcore fantasy baseball players. How many of them are on the forums? Yeah, you know, the number is, you know, well into the thousands. It's hard to get an active number because the, uh, you know, subscribers come and go or change their names in the forums or reactivate a new account every year and that sort of thing. But, you know, the community aspect of it really is unbelievable. It's definitely, uh, you know, come in, get some good advice for yourself, then move over to a couple of other threads and pay that forward with your own perspectives on your own local team or guys you're familiar with or whatever. And it really is, you know, one of the best examples of, you know, sort of the wisdom of crowds that I I, I can point to anywhere. It's really anyone who spends any amount of time in there can't help but, you know, pick up some useful tips and become a better fantasy player just from absorbing the information that is, you know, freely shared among a bunch of, uh, you know, very helpful souls in there. And for owners who are looking to maybe assume a little more risk in hopes of catching lightning in a bottle, you've looked at the projections, you believe them to the extent that you're going to finish sixth and there's not much potential unless you do something a little riskier. There's the Ray Murphy speculator column. I mentioned it at the outset. Ray, what's the philosophy and uh, use of this very popular column? Yeah, this is my 11th or 12th year, something like that, right in the speculator. It's hard to believe it's uh, gone that quickly. But, you know, so the approach there from when we kicked it off years ago is that so much of the analysis and recommendations that we make on the site are based on, you know, skills-based analysis and playing time opportunities and all of that. And basically everyone on the site except me is trying to find 80% percentage plays, 80% recommendations. And, you know, based on all of our best information and everything that we know to be true and stuff we've researched and studied, that, you know, we can tell you that so-and-so is batting average is going to go up because their contact and hard hit rates are in line with a batting average of 20 points higher. It doesn't always work that way, but it's about an 80% play. My task, my focus in the speculator column is to go worry about the other 20% and to come up with the, you know, sort of off the radar Odds aren't likely this is going to happen, but if it does, it can be very, very profitable sort of uh, angles to various you know playing time situations or roles or player development things. So that's where I come in, and you know everyone else is kind of rolling in the eighty percent direction, and I swoop in and try to sort of cover the other twenty percent with stuff that you know ranges from completely off the wall to grounded in sound analytics but requires two or three dominoes to fall for a particular outcome to happen. So that's kind of where I spend my time fishing in the writing world. There's a lot of other stuff at BaseballHQ.com that makes it well well worth having even if you didn't use the site for your draft setup and if you didn't, uh, well, you should have. But for the rest of the season, there's still plenty of opportunities to use these tremendous tools and columns and insight how do fantasy owners sign up ray yeah just stop by baseballhq.com and you can click on the subscribe button on the right and see a couple of uh 
options for subscriptions. You know, we have our draft prep subscription that's running out uh, at the end of April. So that's uh, starting to become a very short term thing, but you can jump into that and then we can maybe make some offers later on this month to convert you to a full season subscription, or you can just jump in for the full season subscription right now. We prorate our pricing so that, you know, the rate uh, now that we're into April is lower than it was in March, which is lower than it was in February. So, you know, like Patrick said, even if you missed out on the preseason draft prep and sort of our draft frenzy, you know, there's everything we were just talking about are still good reasons to use the site and, and good ways to derive value from a subscription that runs from now until the end of the season. So by all means, jump on in and take a look at the options and, you know, always happy to have new people joining us during the year. That forum community is a great place to get the speed once you do come in. And, uh, you know, we'll I'll ride through this season together and see if we can all go out and win some leagues. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. And Ray, I always like to ask our expert guests on our Tuesday Tout Edition for their player picks. We're looking for studs who could overperform expectations and duds who will disappoint. It's our studs and duds feature. Let's start with the studs, Ray. Who's an American League hitter that you would like to add to your roster? Yeah, I'm going to fish pretty deep here to try to come up with some guys who might might still be unowned in some leagues. So, you know, we're going to use the studs term a little bit loosely. But uh, I'll start with American League hitter. I'm going to go with Aaron Hicks, who was terrible last year in his rookie season in Minnesota, but is a guy who sort of had a track record of, you know, struggling the first time he gets to a new level and then improving the second time around. And this is his second time around. He went out and sort of re-won the center field job in Minnesota. His glove should keep him in the lineup. And I think the bat might come along more than you would ever expect based on the terrible run he had last year. I think he's a better hitter than that, and he can show it quickly. And on the National League side, who's a hitter that intrigues you, shall we say? Well, you were talking about the guys with two home runs earlier, and one that I'm not sure you mentioned is uh, Seth Smith from, from uh, San Diego, who moved from Oakland to San Diego this year and socked two home runs, which is you know, sort of out of character for him. But on the other hand, uh, one of the more interesting data points I caught all winter was that uh, the ballpark reconfiguration in San Diego was terrific last year for left-handed power. So it might be that Smith is a uh, sneaky endgame or even still available power source uh, you know, you don't think of power sources in San Diego, but Smith might be a, a guy who can give you a nice boost, and he's going to play a lot with all the, uh, all the injuries they have out in San Diego already. And how about an American League pitcher you think could reap a profit uh, in season? One of those guys who I drafted on a lot of teams and ended up not even making a rotation out of spring training was uh, Brad Peacock in Houston. He got sent out, but um, there were a lot of reasons I liked him at the end of last year. Uh, certainly some of the other touts you've had on the site uh, uh, have been – talking him up lately too, uh, you know, various segments in the preseason. I know Jason Collette was very high on him, but, uh, you know, that's a guy who uh, sooner or later will get a return to the Houston rotation. I'm anxious to see what he can do there. Uh, Not get a lot of wins would be my guess. Uh, And a National League pitcher that you're high on? Yeah, one guy who I caught in my MLTV surfing around last week was – Dan Heron, who I thought looked terrific in his first start and, you know, had sort of an up and down spring, but there were a lot of reasons at the end of last year to think that he had gotten healthy and the Dodgers made a pretty significant financial commitment to him this winter. So they must've felt good about his health. And I think a healthy Dan Heron is a pretty undervalued commodity right now. So that's someone who had a good first start and I might be able to jump, might still be willing to jump in on with both feet. So Ray Murphy studs for the in-season American League hitter Aaron Hicks and Seth Smith in the National, Brad Peacock of Houston as an American League pitcher, and uh, veteran Dan Heron, uh, a National League pitcher. Switching over to the duds now, Ray, who's an American League hitter you definitely will not be taking onto your roster? 
Well, it's a local angle for me, but you know, for all of the buzz in Boston and now around the American League about this, you know, quote unquote, miraculous return of Grady Sizemore and how he looks like he did three years ago and all of that. I'm just having a really hard time buying into it. And I just think that for all of the March hype and the opening day home run and all of that, this ends with him going on the DL uh, before the end of April. And eventually Jackie Bradley comes along to be the center fielder in Boston, like everyone expected he would be. So I did not draft Grady Sizemore anywhere this year. And if he proves me wrong, so be it. But I still feel like that this ends sooner than people think. How about a National League hitter you want no part of? Uh, one guy who I avoided like the plague this preseason, partly because of the cost it was taking to acquire him, was Hanley Ramirez. As good as he was for 80 games last year, I don't have any confidence that he can be that good for 160, nor do I have any confidence that he can, he can even play 160. So, uh I drafted a bunch of guys on the same teams this year, like I was saying, but one guy who I don't own anywhere is Hanley Ramirez. And, of course, not likely that he's undrafted in any leagues, but this is a guy I think is going to pop up in trade talks in a lot of leagues as people get more and more nervous. And I'm with you. I don't want any part of him either. How about on the mound, an American League pitcher you don't want? I'm kind of worried about Matt Moore. Uh, you know, it seemed like he you know, came along a little slowly this spring. He had some aches and pains last year, you know, a sometimes balky arm. And as good as Tampa is at taking care of their pitchers, I just feel like that, they're, they're, you know, it's hard to predict where the, the next injury is going to be. But, you know, that, I kind of feel like Matt Moore might be a time bomb. A National League pitcher you're going to be avoiding? AJ Burnett made uh, you know made a lot of money moving across Pennsylvania from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia, but in terms of support, in sort of every sense, I think he you know really painted himself into a corner. You know that uh, Pittsburgh team is great defensively, was very aggressive in defensive shifting and all that last year, and he Burnett you know benefited very very much from all of that, and he sort of left all that behind and going to Philadelphia, where he now has a worse ballpark, a worse defense with a lot of older statuesque kind of infielders <laughs> behind him and you know one thing we've seen with Burnett going back to his Yankee days is that sometimes he doesn't deal with adversity very well and you know the key to his success in Pittsburgh was avoiding that adversity in the first place and being put in a position to succeed and he kind of left all those safety nets behind him and I wouldn't be surprised to see the wheels come off and the you know quote-unquote Yankee AJ Burnett return this year but of course he can count on the love and support of the Philadelphia sporting fan <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so we have Grady Sizemore, Hanley Ramirez, Matt Moore, and A.J. Burnett as Ray Murphy's duds for 2014. Stay away from those guys. Uh, Ray, thanks very much for joining us. Tell us where people can read your regular speculator column and maybe some topics you've got going in the hopper. Yes, so speculator column, if you visit the site, it's under the research heading on the top toolbar. Uh, I was just working out the schedule. I think in, during the in-season period, we're going to be running it on Saturdays every week. The, the preseason schedule was a little sporadic just because I had a bunch of other responsibilities. But now that we get into in-season mode, uh, look for it on Saturdays. And I'll be uh, still staying in the Masternodes rotation here on Baseball HQ Radio. So I'll be popping in here every few weeks. And and we'll have a few other surprises along the way as well. And uh, how else can fans follow you? Stay up to date. 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, Twitter handle is at RayHQ. And if you send email to customer support at BaseballHQ about uh, you know any function of the site or questions about that, you know I'm probably going to be the guy who answers you on the other end. And don't forget those subscriber forums, which are uh, you know perhaps your fastest way to get in touch with me because I'm on there. You know it seems like all day long because just because it's so much fun. It does seem that way, and uh, it's it is it's a great resource for uh, baseball fans even if you just want to talk ball but certainly for fantasy ray thanks very much for doing this we'll catch up with you again during the year thank you pd ray murphy is the speculator columnist and co-general manager at baseballhq.com our baseball hq commentaries are next stay here it's baseball hq radio i'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives these two activities and yet they're so different the objects of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home. I'm going home. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now for these features. In playing time today, we look at the crowded Dodgers outfield. Today's Tuesday tout guest Ray Murphy has part two of his speculator column on long shot leaders and award winners. And starting pitcher's buyer's guide columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at six starters around baseball, some opportunities there. Plus we have the regular analysis of other playing time, facts and flukes performance validation, our buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, and more. It's fantasy intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have minor league analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute. And leading off, it's the Metric Minute. And here to tell us about PQS scores for starting pitchers, analyst Ryan Bloomfield. In this week's Metric Minute, we'll take a look at the Pure Quality Start Metric, or PQS scores for starting pitchers. PQS scores are essentially a skills-based measure uh, that measure the effectiveness of each individual start. PQS scores range on a scale of 0 to 5 for each start, and each point on that 0 to 5 scale corresponds with a pitching skill. So for each start, a pitcher gets a point for the following. Uh, number one, pitching six innings or more in the start, which measures the pitcher's stamina. Number two, allowing no less than one hit per inning, which measures hit prevention. Uh, the third one, dominance. The starter gets a point if he strikes out no fewer than two less than his innings pitched. So, for example, if a pitcher goes seven innings in the start, he needs to strike out at least five hitters to get a point here. Uh, the fourth one, the pitcher gets a point if his strikeout-to-walk ratio is two or more, which measures command. And finally, number five, the pitcher can only allow one home run or fewer in the start to get a point here. Uh, it measures the pitcher's ability to keep the ball in the park. So you add up the points for each one of these requirements to get a total PQS score for each start. PQS scores themselves are pretty handy. Uh, we do use them heavily on BaseballHQ.com for other metrics such as identifying dominant starts, which are PQS scores of 4 or 5, 
or disaster starts, PQS scores of 0 or 1, uh, to evaluate pitcher consistency. Uh, PQS scores are also used to form the basis for, for starting pitching report scores, which we'll actually take a look here next week on the Metric Minute. So for now, for Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com and talks about various site metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Minor League Minute, and with a look at the Reds' top prospect, right-handed pitcher Rob Stevenson, here's Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. In this week's Minor League Minute, we take a look at the Cincinnati Reds' Robert Stevenson. The 21-year-old Stevenson was the 27th overall pick in a very deep 2011 draft and has quickly become one of the best pitching prospects in the National League. At 6 foot 395 pounds, he has an ideal power pitching frame and comes after hitters with a plus 94 to 96 mile an hour fastball that tops out at 99 miles an hour. He complements the heater with a plus 12 to 6 curveball and a changeup that showed great improvement last year. Stevenson's fastball tends to be fairly straight, but he locates it well and uses his off-speed stuff enough to keep hitters off balance. In 2013, Stevenson went 7-7 with a 2.99 ERA between low A, high A, and double A. He struck out 136 and 114 in the third innings while walking just 35 and limiting opposing hitters to a 2.17 batting average against. The Reds started him back at double A this spring, and in his first outing, he tossed five shutout innings giving up just one hit while striking out 11. With Matt Latos set to come off the DL next week, the Reds have no reason to rush Stevenson, but the strong-arm right-hander should be in the majors by the All-Star break and has the stuff to be a true staff ace. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. I was looking at this Stevenson kid, and I found out that Stevenson threw two consecutive no-hitters in California high school baseball, which is interesting for a Cincinnati Reds prospect because it echoes the feat accomplished by another Reds pitcher, Johnny Vandermeer, back in uh, the late 30s, still the only big league pitcher to throw two consecutive no-hitters. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and pretty much everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition for April the 8th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 23 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday Tout Edition, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. Ray's always a great guest on the show, and his speculator column is an absolute must-read at BaseballHQ.com. I also want to thank our commentators from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our Metric Minute commentator, and minor league analyst Rob Gordon had the Minor League Minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can feel free to follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, as well. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with our News and Notes show featuring League Watch news reports, Todd Zola, and Master Notes on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>